0: ever wonder how some of the greatest people today become who they are? Most everyone has experienced that turning point in their life. It's these moments that forever changed who they were into whom they've become. Today on The Moment with Chris Epting. You'll hear from these people and hopefully be inspired to find your own life-changing moment. Now, here is your host, Chris Epting.
1: And thank you for joining me here on The Moment today. My guest is someone who's written a riveting memoir. I'm going to read it bit about it here uh the the memoir is called rock monster my life with joe walsh by Kristen casey and far from uh far from bitter or self-pitying rock monster is an honest account of one woman's life-changing experience in a relationship with rock legend joe walsh at once envious glamorous debauched and disturbing it's her long and winding journey from life in the fast lane to sobriety and redemption unquote and with that Kristen casey welcome to the show
2: Hi, glad to be here.
1: So, you know, I think that last line there is really key. I mean, there's a lot, well, we're obviously going to unpack your book here, but there's a lot that goes on in it. And at the end of the day, though, it really is a book about redemption. There there are moments in your book, Kristen, where you're on, I mean, you're clinging to the edge. I mean, there's no doubt you're in in very dire straits through a variety of circumstances involving drugs and alcohol, but somehow... Um, you manage to to make your way out. And as interesting and colorful as the rock and roll stuff is, I was really taken by by what happens with you in the end and that the fact that you're able, unlike a lot of others, to to, to, to make it out, to be able to, to tell the story, to write this memoir, which is very well written. I mean, for a first-time book, first-time author out of the gate, um, this really is a well-crafted piece, and you did it by yourself. You didn't, you know co-write or anything like that. So so what was it like for you? I mean, am I reading that right? I mean, t- for, for you, is that really the, the most foundational part of the book, your redemption at the end?
2: Well, yes. First, let me say thank you, because coming from you, um, that part about um, a well-crafted book, and that means the world to me, because the truth is, I always knew I had an interesting story. Um, as insecure as writers can be, that was one thing I was never really that insecure about. Mm-hmm. I just happen to have lived a life that that really lends itself to memoir. Um, but my uh, this was my second manuscript, and the first one wasn't good enough to get published. Actually, <laughs> it still needs some work. But um, that was my biggest fear throughout was really that uh, you know it was I wouldn't be taken seriously as a writer, which is you know as as I mentioned in the book, what I've wanted to do my entire life and be my whole life. Um, But yes, I wrote the book for a number of reasons, but I will say that to me, the overriding, the through line is this journey from dependency to self-reliance and empowerment and self-determination. And so, um, yeah, it's a redemption story. And it's, uh, you know, my relationship with Joe really plays into that story of dependency because I was dependent on my identity as his girlfriend. I was dependent on the relationship. You know, we were both obviously dependent on substances, but it's really just the doorway to the story I really wanted to tell, which is about um, addiction and dependency and redemption and recovery and, and uh, you know, how I ended up where I, where I did and how I got myself out of that. So yeah,
1: recovery programs and things today are a lot different than they were you know back when this was happening to you with him. Have you got what's the feedback been like from readers about that particular issue? I mean, today, of course, you know uh, addiction and opiates, it's very much part of the headlines today. What kind of feedback do you get from people who have written the book about that? Perhaps people who've been through recovery that can relate and identify with you? Um, beyond the music stuff, what what have you gotten back from people who have been through similar circumstances?
2: Well, that has been by far the most rewarding part of this whole experience, um, and it's not just from people in recovery or people who are considering recovery, you know, and still uh, struggling out there with their substance use, um, but from the loved ones of those people who have never had an addiction, don't understand it, and those. Those people, especially who wrote to me, one in particular, I would say, like, he he wrote me, he was a writer, too, and he wrote me, said, I just, your book knocked me out, um, but I have to tell you, above all, I feel for the first time in my life that I understand my sister, who's caused the family so much pain and turmoil, and I, there was a time where I just, you know, we're all throwing up our hands in dis- sort of disgust and frustration, you know, and they just... and. And he said, for the first time, I felt like I was—I could get inside her head—and I felt horrible and <laughs> very guilty. I wow. didn't mean—you know—I didn't—I wasn't pleased that he felt horrible, but the fact that he, <laughs> you know, uh, because I experienced that, and and it makes no—of course, you're not going to understand it if you live through it. That's how crazy addiction. Is and makes a person. I mean, I was mentally ill. I was technically kind of crazy, and so was this man's sister. How would he understand that? It's not something you understand unless you've been there or you're a mental health professional. So um, it was sad that he felt guilty, but it also he said, as soon as I hang up the phone, I'm calling her and I'm going to send her your book. And then she read my book, and so I get I would get you know emails like that um, on occasion, and 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 I, it would just make my week. Like I would just be. I'd feel amazing um, after those. And then, of course, when I hear from people in recovery, who, a lot of people who, who had had very similar paths, maybe without a celebrity, and s- some of them in the music business. I got a lot of people, whether they were roadies or musicians, who just maybe weren't huge names. And, and, um, and they said, I just related to so much in your book. And even some of them who knew some of the same people, um, and I've reconnected with people that I that I knew from back then who were now sober that I had just lost touch with. And that's just, it's all been just an incredibly rewarding thing. And you're right. One of the things I discovered through writing the book, because I don't, you know, I used a 12-step program to get sober and I was very, very active and and went to meetings daily and conferences and did speaker meetings and all that and sponsored a lot of people. But it's been years since I've been active in the recovery scene at all. And so um, uh, the year before the book came out, maybe I just started getting on social media again because I'd been off completely for a long time. And connecting with recovery groups on Facebook and all of that. And I was just floored and really delighted to see all the different ways there are to get sober now, twenty, you know, at the time it was mm-hmm. twenty two years later, whatever. like it was twenty one years later. Like, None of that was available. And it's fantastic because the truth is, while the twelve steps worked for me, um they're not the best way for everyone to get sober. And a lot of people don't get sober because that was the only thing that was available. so it, it it's been an amazing thing. I will say also that there's you know there's a there's a darker side to recovery. Um there's a lot of rehabs that are pure business that are just revolving doors. How much money can we make, you know, off of you? and it, And if you screw up once, they kick you out, and then you have to come back and spend all that money all over again. And um, there's uh, a, it's become a big business, and I think even some of the, um, uh, there are some organizations that are both. You know, all about the profit—not all about the profit, but largely about the profit—but are also helping people get sober. So it's it's become big business, but there's also a lot of new ways to get sober. And then you know, there was nothing online. Just that alone for people in smaller towns or who can't find a meeting that they really gel with where they live—that's right. been amazing. In fact, that's that's kind of how I do meetings now. When I I've been going to more meetings just because. Um, I was down to, you know, going to very few, just a handful a year, maybe. And now I go a little more often because I can jump online. Yeah.
1: You know, you're, you don't pull any punches and your description of what you were going through in your book, Rock Monster. It's brutal and it's harrowing. And I'm, I was just blown away by the level of detail and the fact that you didn't hold back. I think sometimes people are ashamed to share the real nitty gritty of, of what it's like, what it feels like, what it looks like, what it does to your body, all these things. And you to me, it felt like you consciously decided you were just going to put it all in there. That This was going to be something where if you were going to do it, you were going to do it. Do you remember consciously thinking this is not going to be filtered? I'm really going to put everything out there?
2: Um, Well, yes and no. I mean, I think that I consciously knew I was going to be doing that, but I don't think I had to make a decision, you know, like like there was ever a thought that I wasn't going to. And, um, you know, I'm... For a lot of my life, I worked in a field. And for a lot of people, especially in this day and age, your reputation and your image—you know, there, there even used to be that saying. When was that in the '90s? Image is everything. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't believe that, but I do believe your reputation um, is uh, is kind of vital and can be a foundation for your, you know, just your your earnings and um, uh, your social circle, which means, you know. Uh, uh, meeting a a future mate and all of that. So, but for me, I also, for me, there's no stigma attached to the disease of addiction and alcoholism. Mm -hmm. So for me, I'm aware that some people have a, would read that stuff and just think, good Lord, you know, this, this is, this girl was below the ghetto. Like, you know, some of the, um, I didn't, (laughs) I certainly didn't put the pictures in the book of me when I was yellow and bloated. I did put some unflattering pictures in the Mm -hmm. book though. You know, when I was um, that one time that I'd kind of OD'd on the RV trip, that picture of me, I mean, I look like uh, just a a mess in that picture, but I just felt like uh, if you're going to talk about addiction, you need to do it warts and all. You Mm -hmm. need to, I mean, you need to really get real. I and one of the main reasons I wrote the book is I wanted to explain the crazy. I wanted to, I, I, I remembered, I remember so well what it was like, what was going on in my head. And for a lot of addicts in recovery, they kind of can forget. And maybe that's not such a bad thing, but I remembered. I have very powerful, powerful memories of the very thought processes going on in my head that were illogical to the rest of the world and made a very twisted kind of logic to me and I wanted to explain that so that people could get inside the head of the addict and say oh this is what they're thinking this it, you know it's completely mm-hmm. crazy and it and they don't realize it's not making sense but I see how it makes sense to them and so if I'm going to expect anyone to take that part seriously how could I sugarcoat the rest of it you know um, mm-hmm. it, and I wanted people to understand that the desperate situation that I was in, And because there's a lot of other people in that desperate situation, both physically and mentally and emotionally. And uh, they, they need attention right away. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. I I need people to, to, to read my book, take it seriously and think is the addict in my life. Are they teetering on the edge of suicide or physical collapse? You know, I mean, I'm still dealing with health issues that I created in those last two years of my drinking. And there are, People out there who could be, I feel like... um Yes, the addict needs to want to get help, but there's a lot of them who want to get help who need a push, and sometimes this hands-off tough love approach is not the best way to go, and we lose a lot of people that way. Mm-hmm. So, if you can read my book and be aware that not only is this person on the verge of a, a, a mental and emotional collapse, but the damage they're doing to their body may not be reversible. I write a lot about the damage I was doing to my body, and 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 there's even a whole page where I detail how I w- was getting this sort of sick and perverse pleasure out of out of taking control of my demise i mean i had no control over anything so it was very twisted but I was at least in control of the damage i was doing to my body and i felt i had crossed a line that there was no going back i had done too much damage and i wasn't ever going to be healthy again so i had to continue on to 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 the death and you know i got lucky in that i didn't do the amount of permanent damage i actually thought i had done but i still live with permanent damage and there's other people out there that if they can get help sooner, they won't end up with lifelong um, organ damage, and and you know uh, uh, they're going to end up with some trauma probably, but maybe not as much as they could have if they get help sooner. So right. it was important to me because I was writing that book largely for the loved ones of the alcoholic more than anyone else. I think
1: when you um, when you first meet. You, you referenced a couple of minutes ago an RV Trip, which I want to get to because I thought that was an interesting part of the book where things really do go south. But you meet Joe Walsh at an interesting point in his career. The Eagles have um, disbanded, dissolved, whatever, around 1980, 81-ish or so. in the 80s for Walsh becomes just solo career, which is solid. I mean, he's always got his own catalog and some Eagles things to play off of, but he's going through his own addictions. And and why don't you describe for listeners just exactly how you meet and what the initial spark is like and how this relationship gets up and running?
2: Yeah. So we met, I, I had no idea who Joe Walsh was. Um, I listened to a little bit of rock and roll early in high school. Then I got into punk and new wave. And I just had only started listening to rock again, maybe two and a half years before Joe and I met because i had started stripping and they played a ton of just, you know, that was sort of when I really started to appreciate like seventies rock and roll. Cause we played mm-hmm. a ton of that stuff at Sugars. So I'm working with a girl named Vicky and um, she's one of my best friends at the club, which is not saying a lot. Like we didn't hang out a ton, but she was still probably my best friend at the club. Or second best friend and she, I knew she was dating some bass player she'd met when this band had come through town some months previously, and she may have even said he plays with Joe Walsh, but that meant nothing to me. She was like really into it. She knew all the names of all the band members of all the greatest bands. I mean, she was from she was a Detroit girl, you know, or a Michigan girl, so she knew all that. Um, all I knew is she was dating some um, older. Bass player. So one night she comes to me at work. She says, Hey, the guys are in town. They're playing a gig tomorrow. Can you drive me to the hotel after work? I'm dying to see Rick. Um, And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I almost didn't do it um, because I was going to break up with this guy that I was seeing and I'd kind of forgotten about it. (laughs) And uh, she actually runs out to the parking lot, grabs this like big beefy guy, this muscular guy and like pulls him out of my car. She's like, no, you promised me you're right. So I almost never even met Joe. And I was just kind of laughing. I was like, you're right. I'm sorry. So she gets in the car and we're, it's like 2.30 in the morning. It's after work. And she's like, I'm going to drop her off. And she's like, no, no, you got to come up and uh, meet his, uh, the singer guitar player, his best friend. Um, he just got single. And I, I think you guys will really like each other. And I thought, this this is a sneaky little fix-up. She planned this all along, you know? And part of me was like, oh, I, I mean, you know, I just didn't like fix-ups. Um, I don't know why. Everyone has a kind of knee-jerk reaction about that. I've had great fix-ups since then. But anyway, uh, I thought, well, I'll be polite. Like, he's some one-hit one. I liked older men, but I thought... I don't know why I had it in my head that he was just some one-hit wonder from the 70s. He lived out of town, but I thought, he, he'll be interesting. I'll be polite, you know, so hang around for a few minutes, meet a musician. That'll be fun. And we went up there, and uh, I liked Rick right away. He was such a great guy. And then the second I walked in the room where Joe was, I was just a little enamored immediately. He was, it, I think there was a, I think there was some sort of psychic chemistry between us, you know, and I could tell he liked me, too. But over the course of the next 20 minutes, you know, he immediately started kind of goofing off and 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 being silly to make us laugh and putting on a little performance, like doing just jokes. And, and I was just, you know, falling deep more and more towards in love. And then at the like the 20 minute mark, I literally heard a voice in my head. It was like the skies parted. I just knew deep in my heart. And I heard this voice say, This is the man you're meant to marry. And I was in love. I was I was like, this guy's 20 in the moment. 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I remember it. It might've been 30, but I actually remember it was like very soon. And, um, and then he, he's starts acting. He had been acting, he was doing the moonwalk and it was so bad. He was doing like the, it was, which was really big back then, the Michael Jackson moonwalk. And he was so bad at it. It was, and that's kind of what did it. Uh, but so, and I could tell he liked me too. And and the next thing you know, he's rubbing my shoulders and then we're making out. And then I ended up spending the night. So then, so then he puts me on the, um, Uh, guest list and so he leaves me a ticket with Vicky's at Will Call so we go to the show together well his ex-girlfriend has shown up so I can't even get in the trailer so I just leave the backstage area entirely and uh, I I mean it was one of those you know they're broken up but they're kind of back and forth a little bit so I just think I'm gonna go out and watch him play and I'm I'm upset you know because I'm thinking I thought he was broke I thought he was single and then I'm thinking maybe I won't like his music and and that'll be like a small comfort and not only did i love his music but i i knew every song i was like oh my god this guy's a rock star i had no idea no freaking idea and i i was so floored i mean I, they were some rocky mountain White is one of my favorite songs and um i, I was so upset because then i thought well he's never gonna call i was a one night stand the whole thing he probably seduces women like that in every city i went home and cried and then um uh I got a phone call from his road manager saying Joe got a uh, second room, another room at the hotel. He wants you to meet him there. How, you know, get in your car, to get over here. So I cleaned up and I raced over there and he snuck away for the party that was going on in his room and we had our special little private moment and then he just started calling and coming to see me and then you know within a few months we were a couple. Um, so that's Kristen, how that hang happened.
1: On one sec, we're going to take a commercial break. That's a great setup to the next segment, though. This is really where things sort of start taking off. My guest is Kristen Casey, author of the book now out in paperback, by the way, Rock Monster: My Life with Joe Walsh. I'm Chris Epting. This is the moment, and we'll be right back.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Chris Efting will be releasing the third edition of his best-selling baseball travel Bible, Roadside Baseball, in June 2019. Academy Award-nominated director Ken Burns said about roadside baseball, What a wonderful book. All the stations of the cross of our national pastime are here, big and small, telling and frivolous, I can imagine this book in the glove compartment of every true fan's car. A handy reference to this beloved game, no matter where in the country you are. The new edition features hundreds of new places to discover more rare photos, stories, and trivia. It's everything you need to plan the baseball road trip of your dreams. Roadside Baseball. Coming this June. Available for pre-order right now on Amazon.com.
0: You are listening to The Moment with Chris Epting. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to Chris at ChrisEpting.com. That's Chris at ChrisEpting.com. Now, back to The Moment.
1: Back with Kristen Casey, author of Rock Monster, My Life with Joe Walsh, which is just out in paperback. Kristen, you were describing before the break this sort of whirlwind introduction to Joe Walsh uh, down in Texas where you live. You're how old at this point?
2: I was 20 when we met and Joe 20. Was, okay. So yeah. this is
1: like 1988 88, 88. 88, Yeah. So you meet and he's a little bit older, obviously, but, um, you're, you're totally smitten and you meet and what happens now you've, you've met, um, you're together a couple of times down in Texas while he's on the road, but then, you know, they're on the road. So what's it like for you when he leaves town? I mean, you, are you left confused wondering what might be next?
2: when he that first time that we met it was Memorial Day weekend he was here to play the T-Bird River Fest which was an annual thing and I he the way he said to me I'm gonna call you I'll, I'll, we're gonna be together again just trust me I I really did trust him and believe him and he did call a couple of the first couple of times but in the interim in the you know I don't know if it was three days or a week or whatever but but I raced out and, you know, there's no internet. So I, I asked Vicky all about him, but then I bought every record I could find. And and as I'm listening to all of his solo stuff and James Gang, and of course I knew all the Eagles stuff, I don't think I even bought those albums, but um, I was I started to become really blown away by the level of talent that this, you know, like this his music knocked me out, you know, especially some of the older stuff. And so um, when we did talk, I was nervous and self-conscious and I, he probably figured it out, you know, cause I was very, I wasn't like that when we first met cause I had no idea who he was. And even the second day when I figured out who he was, he was still just my soulmate to me. Um, and so we had this kind of awkward, we'd had a couple of good phone calls, I think. And then I, and then around the time that I kind of became like in awe of him, we had this awkward phone call and, um, uh, and then oh and then there was something weird that had happened. I I was I had a friend over and she was making me feel even more like giggly and silly and, and 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 we got off the phone and I just sensed that I that he was pulling away and then he didn't call for a while and a month went by and I was just devastated. I thought that's it. He you know, he doesn't want a fan for a girlfriend whatever and I was beyond depressed. And then Vicky arranged uh, she was going to see them play in St. Louis and she talked Joe into buying me a ticket so I she says don't call him just get on the plane with me and so I did and of course Joe forgot that I was coming and had two teenage girls with him in St. Louis like I'm talking 16 years old he had actually gotten their parents permission but you know they were very cute very blonde very hanging on him and 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 then he saw me and remembered that he'd invited me he was drunk when he'd agreed to pay for my ticket anyway that's a whole other story that's in the book but um so yeah we had a couple of weird sort of stop, you know, uh, 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 faltering starts. But the thing is we had an amazing chemistry and we really had a spark and I was really in love with him from the beginning. And I just felt like we were destined. And I feel like he, um, I don't even know how much Joe believes in destiny, but I just, but he was feeling it too. Like we really had a connection. And so, um, he was on the Gotteny Gum tour, and I don't think it was a super long tour. You know, he, he would fly me out here and there, and then he would come to Austin. And the times it was in Austin, you know, we would hang out with my friends, and things would be super chill. And he was just Joe, and it was a really great escape for him. Um, and you know, even from just the craziness in LA when he was home, the drugs and everything. You know, because I wasn't using coke at this time. You know, that was the thing I, I had had I a little. I was going to say, what yeah. were you
1: at that point in your life when this thing first gets going? what are your habits like? Are you drinking? Do you have, in your in your opinion, any substance issues at that point when it starts? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, I had had a drinking issue from like 15 onward. I, st- I had my first drink at 14 and I would sneak it here and there for that first year. But then when I was 15, my family moved and we were like uprooted from this beautiful home and life in San Diego and ended up in this, you know, uh, small backwards Texas town. I mean, it's, small to me, you know, it's a major city, but it's a small one. And um, it was traumatic. I, I had I left all my friends, everything I knew. I was an insecure person to begin with. So, I started drinking heavily right around the time I turned 16, all through high school. So, for two years, you know, I was a binge drinker every weekend, plastered every Friday and Saturday night for two years. And then I moved to Austin at 17 for college and got so quickly, so heavy into intravenous Crystal Matthews, that I had, I blew all my scholarships and grants. I I dropped out of school um, at the beginning of my second semester. I was emaciated. All my friends were, you know, terrified. I'd been robbed. I'd been abducted. I'd been beaten. I'd been, I had nothing. And I um, but because of that, because meth took me down so quickly at 17, 18. I came to my senses very quickly too. So after like six or eight months, I quit all that. I mean, I would still do a little acid, little mushrooms, whatever. I don't consider those to be, you know, those for me were like about kind of enlightenment, you know, and I, I, I in uh, uh, self-awareness. Uh, so, but and ecstasy was, I think, still legal back then, MDMA. So I did a little of that, but for the most part, I just kind of went back to my drinking. I quit meth and I went back to heavy drinking and then I got a job in a bar. So when I met Joe all I was really doing on a regular basis was drinking, but I was doing a lot of it. Like I had, I would say I was probably an alcoholic by then because I, I I wasn't ever trying to quit, but I definitely was trying to moderate and I wasn't ever, ever able to do it. So I had, I had been drinking heavily for five years and I had had control of it for almost none of that time. And so when we met, I think he was really pleased to find out the first night we met that I didn't do Coke. It was the first thing he learned about me because he offered me some. And then um, within a few months, you know, when I, by the time I could go start going to see him in LA, I discover he has a routine there. And that's get up at four, um, spend a couple hours kind of slowly waking up with-, with You're
1: with, sitting 4 p.m.? <laughs>
2: Yeah, 4 p.m. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, if he went to bed at all, which was maybe five nights a week, uh, he would get up at 4 p.m. And I had, you know, I was getting up at my usual time, noon Texas time, which was 10 a.m. in LA. So I'm wandering around his penthouse every time I go see him for six freaking hours every day, waiting for him to get up. And it was like there was no yard. There was no, he was in Westwood. I couldn't just like go walk to the store or anything. It was driving Mm -hmm. me nuts. So, That was my excuse for like, well, I'm going to get on his schedule. I want to maximize the weekend. I'm only here for the weekend or whatever in the beginning. Um, So I asked him for a bump one night. And uh, I still remember this like millisecond pause from him before he's like, sure. And he gave me one, but from the very beginning, he, he'd never just handed me a, like a packet or a, or a vial. I mean, I would get my own, as the years went by, I would start buying my own and I went through my small savings because as a stripper, I started accumulating some money. Um, but uh, I, my addiction and my use, I had, I think he thought, well, this is a strong woman. She had, she's quit meth, you know, all on her own, but um I quit meth by just doubling up on my drinking. you know what I mean? So um, I didn't really have I was not strong even for um, you know, some addicts are able to moderate longer than I did. I mean, my use got out of control, and had he ever let me just hold on to the drugs, it would have gotten out of control even sooner than it did. By the time we moved in together two or three years later, um, i I was outpacing him, which, if you know, anything about Joe's drug use is saying wow. a lot, you know, and then I blew out, a, I, I blew a hole in my septum. And so I had to, I used that as an excuse. I always had my excuses for what I was doing. My um, rationalization to start um, smoking crack because I couldn't afford to, ha- to 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 lose any more of my septum. I had a dime size hole in there. And so um, my nose was going to collapse if I kept snorting it. So then I started smoking crack and that was a big part of what eventually broke us up because the last year that Joe and I were together, I was a you know, I, I would snort sometimes, but I was a pretty massive, you know, crackhead. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forget even the question that you were. That you well, asked.
1: I was just wondering at the beginning, just what, yeah. I mean, you've actually answered it uh, quite well, uh, painfully <laughs> so. I mean, what you were like going into the relationship. So your exposure to sort of this lifestyle now and the. The, trying to um, align your timing with him results in addiction just in the fact that you're trying to, again, try and parallel when you're getting up and, you know, to get on his sk- timeline basically and schedule basically yeah. forces you into this sort of death spiral of drug use it results yeah. in, in smoking crack. But I mean, that's not for when that all happens in the book and the chronology, it's down the ways a bit, but you do have, in the beginning, um, a pretty interesting, uh, you know, entree into that world, which was nothing you were ever part of before.
2: No, it was a blast. And here's the thing, like, like for most addicts, if it's not fun in the beginning, you would never continue to do it. And and my, so my first few years of, of Coke use, wasn't just fun because Coke is fun, but I was madly in love with my Prince Charming who was giving me a lifestyle that I would never have dreamed of. It was just world travel, meeting celebrities, having a ball. So, you know, love enough, falling in love for really deeply for the first time. I've been in love like once briefly in high school, but you know, the dopamine rush from that alone is really intoxicating and people do stupid stuff based on that alone. And, and I, I had just at 20 because of the meth addiction, I had kind of lost myself. And, and uh, when I was living at home as a teenager, I wasn't really allowed to be myself. You know, I was a really kind of quirky, creative individual. And, and that was not, You know, my parents, my mother especially, were were not cool with that. So, I I was never allowed to really be my authentic self at home. And then as Mm -hmm. soon as I left home, I was so heavy into drugs that it wasn't until I was like 18 that I really kind of started to figure out who I was like that person and sort of really own those pieces that, you know, that creative side, that sexy side, that um, intellectual side. It was, you know, it was a very cerebral person. I loved school. It was the one thing I was good at next to stripping. And so I was going back to school. I was writing my first short stories. Um, I was finally in an atmosphere where my sexuality uh, was uh, celebrated as opposed to shamed, which, you know, as a Catholic all my life. So I was slowly coming into my own a few years later than the average person, but I hadn't really, it hadn't solidified. And then I met Joe and not only did I eventually start doing drugs and, you know, that kind of uh, takes, becomes your priority. But I gave up this identity I was forming because when you, not just as a writer, um, which is a tough field to get into. You know, there's a lot of rejection, but just as a um, every, everything about me was just so non-conformist that um, it was going to be, I was going to have to face that out in the world that I was a little bit different. And, and it just takes a little bit of strength to really own that out in the world. And it was so much easier to just, just base my identity on I'm a star's girlfriend and eventually his fiance. And that's, All I have to be. I quit writing. I quit school another two more times for good, and so um, I gave up my identity and just became his shadow. And uh, I think there was a reason I was I was getting into that. I forget what it was. But
1: well, I'm curious about who. Oh, oh,
2: the fun. I was. I'm sorry. I was talking about the fun parts. So yeah it was really easy to quit school two times because I was going to Japan. The second time was because I was going to Japan with um, Joe and Ringo Starr and a bunch of other celebrities. And, you know, so it was glamorous. It was a blast. I have a lot of, I think, pretty funny and fun um, celebrity stories. And so the, while we're touring, I was at first. I'd go out for a week at a time, and then go home for a couple of weeks, and then I go out for two weeks at a time, and then I come home. But I always had a drying out period in Austin where I would drink, but not do drugs. I didn't right. want to spend my hard-earned money on cocaine, and I wasn't such a coke addict that I had to have it daily. It was just if it was around, I was going to do it till it was gone. And so it was once I moved in with him that I lost all control because then I didn't have a place to go to dry out anymore. I didn't have my own life. I didn't have my own money, and I. I just um, that's when I that's when things so that happens like maybe two thirds into the book or something or halfway through the book. And even still, you know, there was a lot of fun. It's it gets it it starts to get a little dark and then it's both glamorous and fun and a little dark. And then like the last third of the book, I think it starts to get, you know, things get really kind of hairy.
1: Well, to your point, there is a lot of um, a lot of jet setting and a lot of wildly colorful characters. I like the segment where you go to Australia for the first time. I think that's it's an interesting part in Joe Walsh's career as well, where he's you know as as a, an artist at that point, he's kind of going to find audiences. He's going to play where he needs to play to keep things going. Yeah, and, and it's not the Eagles anymore. It's a much more scaled down kind of thing. And you're that's a part of his career that hasn't really been that well documented. I think interestingly, you document. Because you were there, you you were you know in the in the passenger seat for a lot of that, yeah. Kristen. Were there other women on the road that you met who had either similar or maybe even dissimilar relationships with rock stars that you related to or at least could, you know, um, converse with on the road and and share frustration, excitement, things like that. Huh? Yeah,
2: there was like on the Ringo tour, which Joe and I had been together for a year when when we went out on Ringo's first all-star band tour. And almost every woman on that tour was married and married for a long time with her celebrity partner, you know, like Dr. John's wife, um, uh, Levon Helm's wife, Sandy, Rick Danko's wife from the band, um, Elizabeth, uh, Barbara Bach, Ringo's wife. Um, And so they were great role models, Barbara especially because she was sober and she was always so warm and welcoming and like she would, you know, really take an interest in me and, and she noticed, you know, that I was bright. And so she kind of, like she would pull me into this like word puzzles the group was doing on the tour bus or whatever. And, and so I felt appreciated and seen. And I felt like had I spent more time with her back then, I don't know, but there were also like Rick, the bass player had a girlfriend in every port, you know, and, and, and they weren't, no one was as nuts as I was, but they were, <laughs> you know, they were, they would party with us. So it was very normalized. I would say that the person I got the closest to, who was also a really good influence on me and I, and I always, I missed her more than anyone when I ended up leaving the city and leaving Joe and leaving the life with C.C. Edmonds, Dave Edmonds' wife. She. Was I was th-
1: hoping you'd mention her because I, I like the way you describe her in the book. And she really seems like a protagonist. I, I like her personality yeah. in there. And uh, she seems uh, like a good person for you at that point in your life.
2: Yeah, she was an amazing woman, and and she was, you know, she was a knockout. And she was, but she was, my first thought when I saw her was, oh, I'm not going to be the prettiest woman on this tour. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> she was a like she was the kind of woman that you see in MTV videos, like platinum blonde, perfect figure, huge rack, um, but opens her mouth and she's got this Swedish accent and she's the sweetest woman in the world. And turns out she and David just bought a house really close to Joe and I. And, um, and so what she, she knew how to be a rock star's wife. Like she, she had her own side business. She was a makeup artist. And so when Dave's, career wasn't raking it in, because I think it was kind of feast or famine for him sometimes. You know, she she was happy to work. I think she um, was happy to be, like, a, I think she was a stepmother to his two kids. But she taught me a lot about how to handle the temperament of a rock star. And also, she she was someone who could moderate her partying. You know, like, I never saw her. She, she would sip on champagne cocktails, unlike me, who was slamming down tequila shots, you know. And, and she... And so, she was responsible. She was So, she was a beautiful rock chick who was madly in love with her husband who absolutely adored her. She led the same lifestyle, but she did it right. And I might have been too far gone by the time we met, but she did definitely make some of my time with Joe better than it would have been because she got me to understand a little bit better, you know why he was the way he was and how, just how to handle him. Mm-hmm. I mean, she never judged me too, because I think some of the other, and I wouldn't say the other wives judged me, like, like Arlie Manuel, who was um, married to Richard Manuel from the band who committed suicide years before. She had been sober a long time and she was working with Ringo. So she was on his um, second All-Star tour and she and Barbara both tried to help me get sober. They both reached out independently. They just... Arlie came over one day, uh, Barbara reached out by phone and let me know she was there if I ever wanted to talk, but I, at the time, was not, I did not at all see the path that was going down. I was not ready at all. I didn't get it, and I just rejected their help out of hand completely, and they I won't say they judged me at all. I think that they, as former addicts, they they understood me really well, and they had nothing but compassion for me. Um, Cece, I don't think, I don't know how much she knew about addiction or, or even about I mean, she probably could tell I was overdoing it, but she was just a friend. You know, she was just a great friend, and I, I, I've always missed her terribly. There was a, there are women who are really good at being rock star girlfriends. I was not one of them.
1: <laughs> On that note, we have another commercial break. But let's pick that up when we get back. That's an interesting comment. I'm Chris Epting. Kristen Casey is the author of Rock Monster: Life with Joe Walsh, now out in uh, in paperback. And we'll be right back in a minute.
3: Chris Hefting will be releasing the third edition of his best-selling baseball travel Bible, Roadside Baseball, in June 2019. Academy Award-nominated director Ken Burns said about roadside baseball, What a wonderful book. All the stations of the cross of our national pastime are here. Big and small, telling and frivolous, I can imagine this book in the glove compartment of every true fan's car. A handy reference to this beloved game no matter where in the country you are. The new edition features hundreds of new places to discover more rare photos, stories, and trivia. It's everything you need to plan the baseball road trip of your dreams. Roadside Baseball, coming this June. Available for pre-order right now on Amazon.com. access all the time. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: You are listening to The Moment with Chris Epting. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to Chris at ChrisEpting.com. That's Chris at ChrisEpting.com. Now, back to the moment.
1: Speaking with Kristen Casey, author of Rock Monster: My Life with Joe Walsh, just out in paperback. Kristen, we could spend hours. I mean, again, having read the book, you you are very efficient in how many stories you're able to weave in there. Um, You know, effectively, all kinds of really wild rides. I really encourage people to read the book. Um, We were talking earlier into the break about other rock and roll wives on the road and what you could learn from them. You're, you're probably the youngest one at that point out there on the road, right?
2: I was, I was, I was young enough to be some of their daughters. Um, there huh. were very few, I, there was nobody who was my age. Actually, everyone was at, at the very minimum. Even Rick's girlfriends were at least five years older than me.
1: Yeah. But you, you know, earlier you also, one of the stories that did jump out of me in the book is when you and Joe go to Joshua tree and you sort of plan this, RV escape, which, you know, could have been really nice um but it but it turns a corner and you know things get get out of control and uh why don't you talk a little bit about that because i mean for me like joshua tree is is one of the great escapes in the world i mean it's just one of the most peaceful esoteric naturally beautiful places and you you know your trip out there there's some of that but then there's also a darkness that that manages to uh to pervade the trip describe a little bit about that experience and what happened to you specifically
2: yeah. So before we even left, you know, we're, it, we specifically rented the RV and we're going on this um, road trip to get away from LA and get away from the drugs. And we just thought, we'll bring just a little bit, kind of tide us over. We'll have to be forced to moderate, you know, maybe. And the next thing you know, we also do some grocery shopping, put a little beer, a little wine, a little vodka. Next thing you know, we're, we're, we're bringing every drug. We, you know, we had mushrooms, ecstasy, and, and then we still ran out like two days later and had to turn around and, and, and go back. But so, uh, Joe and I, one of our biggest issues was we, we just didn't communicate very well. And so, um, he, I think he was disappointed in me that I was using so, you know, that we were using so much and, and, uh, he didn't say anything, but he just kind of shut me off. And that upset me so much that I ended up going into our stash and taking a little of everything. And that was, you know, I don't handle pot very well. And so as pot, acid, ecstasy, um, I think mushrooms too, um, and Coke and booze, some hard booze all at once. And it was just like, I'm, I'll show him, I'll get really fucked up. And, um, can I say that? Sorry. Uh, no, so, yeah. So I, so, Then he had gotten out. He had gone shopping, so he got back in the RV, and and we head up to. um, This was actually probably after Joshua Tree. Yeah. By the time we get to Joshua Tree, basically we were still, we were just in this weird place where there was tension between us, and it was gorgeous. We were climbing the rocks, and we were getting along, but I just felt this distance between us. And then, and then. You know, it was funny because as we got off the rocks at sunset and we were heading back to the RV, he, we hear our neighbors at the campsite um, playing Rocky Mountain, not Rocky Mountain, wait. Um, oh, Hotel California, California, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and Joe had, I kind of looked at Joe like I was kind of laughing, like, oh, that's funny, you know. And, and he just kind of, you know, uh, uh, puts his head down and looks away and like bolts past their campsite, like, don't recognize me. And at the time, it seemed to me like it was just this sort of, this sense of um of guilt or shame about where he was in life, maybe in his career and with his drug use. And then we just we just did more blow. As soon as we got back into the R V, he dumps out the biggest pile and we just are raging all night in the R V. And we didn't talk about anything. We we rarely even talked about his feelings about his career, but I could see. I mean, you know, you live with someone, you pick up on on why they're being depressed, and you know his career was kind of going downhill. Our drug use was completely out of control. Those two things alone, he was worried about me. He was worried about his reputation. I think he was worried about his career. Um, and, and on that RV trip, it just—we were in that RV. Every, everything that we were doing in LA, everything that was wrong in our world, our relationship and our lives was in that tiny little RV with us. Right. And, you know, I'm, I totally overdose on all these drugs. And I have this, like, I'm hallucinating in the back of the, I'm, I'm, I go down this very dark wormhole and I, I'm, ha- I'm like kind of traumatized by these delusions. These literally, um, I'm seeing demons and, um, it was just a night, it turned into a nightmare trip. Um, and i mean, in trip in a, in a couple of different ways. Uh, and it was really, it kind of shook the foundation of my, of my world. I mean, I just knew, I knew things, I knew we had problems and I knew I had problems, but I, I just felt like I had really lost control of my life and my substance use, um, at that point. And that trip really encapsulated it for me.
1: Yeah, it really is. Uh, but again, there are a lot of moments in the book that are little, uh, you know, standalone moments that if if that's all you read, it's just paints a very colorful and intense picture of what you were going through. Um, you both, uh, th- this goes on for a number of years, the relationship with a variety of different crazy experiences. And again, like you said, not, not all bad. There's plenty of joy and, and, and love, you know, within uh, the passages as well but but the drugs take their toll and then you find yourself in Las Vegas and that's where your personal um, climb out of the ashes starts right That's where things for you where you realize it's it's sink or swim at that point
2: Yeah yeah Joe and I broke up and got back together kind of a, a handful of times at one time one in particular time and it happened that the same night that he ended up um, deciding to get sober. The Eagles talked him into getting sober. So our last year together, I was still drinking. I wasn't really using Coke anymore because uh, he wasn't buying it. But he he was on the road with the Eagles. His life was taken off. His sobriety was taken off. And I just could not, my, my drinking was completely out of control. I was a full blown alcoholic and I was raging. So I'm living in Vegas at that time. And when it, when it was finally over, when he finally had to come and say goodbye, you know, because it had been over really for months. It was a farce, um, but he kind of wanted to come and say an official goodbye. And and it broke me so badly that I decided I'm just going to drink myself to death because by then my whole identity was wrapped up in him. And when he was gone, I felt like there, I was so unmoored. I, I didn't exist. I, I felt like I, the whole world would be better off without me. I don't really exist anymore anyway. And I can't get a handle on my drinking. And I didn't really understand that I could get help that there was help out there. I didn't understand, I, I thought if I went to AA, I was going to end up in a PTA meeting with a minivan I I didn't even have kids. So I'm not sure why I thought that was going to be my fate. Like, but I was convinced I'd have to start wearing like Peter Pan collars and like my whole, I was a stripper. I loved my wild life. It never occurred to me. I could still have a crazy, wild, sexy life without drugs, which is basically what, what did eventually happen. I mean, I, I continued stripping. I, I continued having a, you know, I didn't have a lot of fun in the beginning because I just went to meetings and went to work, Mm -hmm. but as time went on. Um, and in fact, in my 40s, my life got even wilder and sexier, And but I had control of it. And it's, I say wild and sexy in a completely good and healthy way. I'm an un- unconventional person, and you can lead an unconventional life and have a blast. I mean, everything is better in sobriety. I made way more money. I had way better friends. Sex got way better. I wish someone had told me that in my 20s. I might have actually considered getting sober sooner if they'd have just said, you know, sex gets a lot better. Uh, but nobody did. So, yeah, the... So when Joe and I broke up, I thought, well, I could put a gun to my head or slip my wrist, or so I could just continue drinking the way I'm drinking, and I will be dead very soon. And I and I wasn't wrong about that. Like it took less than two years, and I was, I was almost dead of alcohol poisoning. I was in the hospital a few times, and uh, and it was laying on what I thought was my deathbed. I thought I might die this day i thought i might have just hours to live i was that sick and i couldn't move and i couldn't speak all i could do was just vomit over and over and over again i thought and i the kind of pain i was in was indescribable and i thought this is maybe the day i'm gonna die and when it didn't happen right away and i couldn't do anything but think i just sort of it was like a veil lifted and i just realized this is not how i'm meant to go i i believe that there is a higher power of some sort out there and i believed it back then and i I don't know why I've always had that belief. I just always have, you know, I never believed in the Christian or Catholic God, but I definitely believed that there, that I was, there's an intelligent force in the universe that gave me a purpose and that I, that my job was to find it and fill it. And I, I'd always known that, but I just was trying to escape because I didn't think I had what it took to to deserve to be on the planet really. And, but I just also knew that, if I if I went ahead and drank myself to death that I was probably gonna be reincarnated and just have to start over. <laughs> that was kind of the deciding factor. So I I I um I lived through the day actually. And I think it was because I made an inner decision that um, okay, I'll try to get help. And I knew there was funny enough, there are a lot of sober strippers in Vegas and a couple of them had one in particular had let me know, I'm saving you a seat, girl, you say the word and and the day you're ready. And so I called her. And uh, she was out of town, but she directed me to a meeting, and I hated it, and I hated everyone in it. I didn't understand what the hell they were talking about, And um, but I went back because I had nowhere else to go. And um, after a month or so, it started making sense, and, and that's how I ended up uh, getting sober. But yeah, I had one foot in the grave, yeah.
1: Kristen, in our last couple of minutes, talk a little bit about what you're working on now. Is there another book, another memoir? We're, we're, as a writer, now you know there's nothing like getting the first one out into the marketplace, right? That's a yeah. it's an amazing accomplishment uh, when you when you experience that. So, what do you want to do next as a writer?
2: You know, I, I would tell you, I ended the book very shortly after I got sober. You know, the last chapter is basically about mm-hmm. you know those first sort of first days and sort of really the first six months, but. Um, I had a lot of challenges, not just health challenges, because I'm, and I'm, you know, who wants to read a book about my health challenges? Um, But I I had such a fear of intimacy. You know, I always kind of had, but then I was, I knew what I had done with Joe. I'd given up my identity. And so I was terrified that if I fell in love again, that that would happen again. So my entire, the most important journey I made in sobriety was overcoming fear of intimacy. And in fact, that's, The work I do now is as a counselor, as an intimacy coach, I I help others with that, with their um, intimacy issues, uh, both physical and emotional. But it's because of the journey I went through in my 30s, and it culminated in this relationship at 10 years sober with the most amazing man who really helped heal what got broken when I was with Joe. And it's a funnier story. I mean, it's, it's not quite as glamorous, but it is at least as fun a story, I think, because I basically did it on my own. I didn't have an intimacy coach, so I just made every dating mistake in the book and that and you know that's kind of humorous. I mean, I dated all the wrong guys and then I dated all the right guys in all the wrong ways. and I did everything I could to get close to someone without actually ever getting letting them get close to me and um, but I think emotional isolation contributes so much to addiction and substance abuse. Um, and for me, certainly it did. And then when I got sober. I still had to learn to overcome it. It doesn't just happen overnight, right? Like you have to learn that. And so that was what my my the first 10 years of my sobriety was about. So that's what my next book's going to be about.
1: Well, that's terrific. And listen, you're a terrific storyteller. You have a keen, vivid eye for detail. I mean, I wondered in, in the book, Rock Monster, were you writing or keep it or journaling, keeping any kind of diary then? Because um, beyond that, you've got a hell of a memory because you do bring those stories back with uh, with amazing detail.
2: Oh, thanks. Yeah. I do actually have an amazing memory. I mean, ask anyone I know, It's it's it, it freaks me out when I ask someone, did it really happen this way? They're like, <laughs> oh my God, I can't believe you remember all those details. But the truth is I did keep journals as well. And I also took a million pictures and those will really help um, lock something into your memory. So, between my sure. journals and the pictures, um, I kept even better journals um, probably through my 30s. So, thankfully, I have those um, also to rely on. And I think for a memoirist, I think it's very valid to to write what you remember, even if your memory isn't Word perfect, but for me, I, I feel very lucky that I was smart enough to keep journals because it really that's helps. you know,
1: and you bring up a great point too. And I tell people this all the time you really you are entitled to your version of it. Um, not that you can make things up, obviously, but we all look at things from a different angle, and you're entitled to your own perspective, right? Um, and whether or not somebody remembers it a little differently, that just sometimes happens. But listen, Chris, I'm going to thank you again. We'll need to do this again because I feel like a uh, you know, we we've, we've hardly scratched the surface despite the fact that you, you, you really were uh very telling today, and how you approach this, and, and and you know what made you want to do this. The book is Rock Monster: My Life with Joe Walsh. The author is Kristen Casey. The book is available, obviously, on Amazon.com. I mean, Kristen, where should we st- where should we steer people to get your book right now? What's the best? Oh part?
2: yeah, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it probably in, in most bookstores, Barnes and Noble, and if you have an indie bookstore where you're at, definitely go there. Um, you can go to my website too, uh, which is Kristencasey.com and um, uh, there's links on there to and cool um,
1: pictures too that. You Oh, tons of pictures. Lots yeah, of stuff.
2: yeah, yeah. My Facebook, it's taking my social media where I post a bunch of pictures, but also I've got a whole picture page of the me and, me and Joe years on my website.
1: Kristen, thank you uh, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And I really enjoyed your book as well. And in the meantime, I'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to The Moment and go out and get Rock Monster by Kristen Casey. We'll see you next week.
0: Thank you for taking a moment out of your busy week to join us for the moment be sure to join chris Epting for another edition every wednesday at 11 a.m pacific time and 2 p.m eastern time on the voice america variety channel we'll see you here next week